Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, let's talk about emotions for a minute. What question for you guys? What do you do with your emotions? Or maybe to put a put a finer point on it, when was the last time you told someone that you were angry? Or you said the words, I feel sad. Or I'm really scared right now. And just named the emotion as it was, as it as it came up in your heart. You guys might be way more emotionally intelligent than I am or whatever, but being able to do that has been a growth edge for me. Uh, it took about a year of marriage counseling for me to be able to admit that I was angry. Uh, somewhere I'd picked up that, you know, Christians aren't supposed to get angry. We, we, we don't get angry as Christians, we just get frustrated. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Uh, and um, people, some people would say, Josh, it seems like, you know, it seems like you're kind of angry right now. No, no, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated that all these people are being the way that they are, or, you know, just miles away from what was going on. And so, this awareness to know what I was feeling in my emotionally limited 20s uh, was pretty much that I felt angry a lot of the time. <laughs> I was watching a, a, a Batman movie with my kids and there's this moment where Batman starts to get sad and Alfred, this is the Lego Batman movie by the way, Alfred says, it seems like you're feeling sad right now and Batman's like, no, I only feel 110% rage and awesomeness all the time. And I was like, yeah, I think that's kind of how I felt back in, in my 20s. And then it took another year of marriage counseling to work past the anger and consider what was underneath it. This is for free. Anger is typically a surface emotion. It always has something underneath it, typically sadness or fear. So take that and chew on that with, uh, with, alone with God. But I go into all this emotion talk because that, that, that's what struck me from this passage today. We see Jesus having three very strong emotions, deep emotions as he interacts with three different types of people. And as we walk through the gospel of Mark, uh, taking our sweet time, taking most of this year to uh, go through this little biography of Jesus, uh, we, we want to behold Jesus as, as he is in the scriptures, as the burning center of human history, of, of the story of scripture, of God's grand plan of redemption. This first half of the gospel of Mark that we're coming to the, uh, the, the, end, the end of here uh, in chapter eight is that Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the king that Jesus has all the authority, all the power. And, he, and with that authority, as the king, he calls people to follow him as an, as an apprentice, uh, which is our English word that would be closest to what disciple meant in the scripture time. Someone who would follow Jesus like an electrician's apprentice, learning from him. And in my experience, the further a church gets away from real concrete understanding of this uh, discipleship, this apprenticeship to Jesus, uh, the, the more that things can get kind of wonky in church or stale and boring or anxious and confused. And so 
we're keeping our eyes on Jesus with this series. And, uh, and I guess what I want us to see today is that it's, it's not as easy or as simple as that. Just like, just keep Jesus the center. Just keep Jesus the center and everything's fine. I think it's a great plan to keep Jesus the center. But as we see Jesus emote in our text, as we see Jesus having these emotional responses to the people he's interacting with, I think it, it, it gives us an invitation to be honest about what we are experiencing, and then particularly to be honest about uh, of these three groups of people that Jesus is interacting with, which ones would we most uh, be in line with? These emotions that we see in Jesus's, uh, in, in this passage, uh, are all connected to three groups of people, which are kind of, you we're using as the outline for our time. The first emotion that we see uh, from Jesus is compassion. We see that Jesus feels compassion towards teachable people. Next, we see that Jesus feels despair towards demanding people. And then lastly, that Jesus feels anger towards distracted people. So it starts off really, really cozy with Jesus feeling compassion and then it gets a little bit uncomfortable. But uh, my prayer is that our hearts would be soft to hear what the scriptures have for us and, and what, what we can learn from Jesus and his emotions. So let's dive in. With this uh, miracle of feeding the 4,000, there is compassion. And there's a little bit of deja vu going on because it's very similar to a miracle we looked at a little while ago when Jesus fed 5,000 people back in chapter six. Uh, but, the, but the miracles are different. Uh, for starters, the, the feeding of the 5,000, that was to pre predominantly Jewish people, Jewish men, who uh, most scholars believe were angry men uh, wanting revolution. It was right after John the Baptist was beheaded for no good reason, and they were sick and tired of Roman oppression. And here we have Jesus in a predominantly non-Jewish area, a Gentile area with people who are not part of Israel. And this is really a, a big shift in Jesus's ministry. After doing ministry almost exclusively with Jewish people, the last, the last few stories that we've had, he's doing ministry beyond Israel into Gentile areas. And it's Jesus foreshadowing uh, and fulfilling God's plan from the beginning is that he would call the people to be his people and he would bless them in order that they would in turn bless the nations, but Israel had kind of lost that plot line. And, and it honestly got a little bit racist towards non-Jewish people. And so we, here we have Jesus as the son of God moving towards uh, all the nations and blessing them. And so it's foreshadowing the, the, the work that we see uh, the apostles do and their church planning work into uh, the rest of the New Testament of starting churches amongst Gentiles where Jews and Gentiles can be together in one church family. It's beautiful. Look how it starts, verses one through three. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So Jesus' compassion is front and center in this passage. Unlike the feeding of the 5,000 where he's just kind of doing his thing. He's been teaching the group, the crowd for about a day and the disciples start to get antsy and they're like, how are we gonna feed these people? This is Jesus at day three saying, initiating, self-disclosing, I have compassion on the crowd. 
And I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word compassion. I think sometimes it can kind of get stripped of its power, its oomph, if it gets, you know, associated with, you know, thoughts and prayers for you and your, your trials or some kind of just sentimental, like tender emotion. But biblically, compassion is much more gritty than that, much more robust uh, in bodily uh, than just some kind of like, oh, that's sad kind of feeling. The, the Greek word translated here, compassion, is, is one of my top three favorite Greek words. It's splonk nizomai. I like how that sounds. Uh, and it comes, it's the verb form of compassion, like to have compassion or to compassion someone. And the word that it comes from is gut, from splonknon, which is the Greek word for like innards your heart, your vital organs, all that kind of thing. And so it's this, this idea from deep in our gut, we, we feel this compassion. Like think of a mother hearing her child cry because the child is hurt and scared. Like deep in her gut, deep in the body who bore the child into the world, there's a response of compassion to want to move towards the child with tenderness and care and comfort. That's what we see in Jesus here. That's the biblical picture of compassion. And that's what we see our king having towards this crowd. And our, our English word compassion comes from Latin, which means to suffer with. I'm being with, passion meaning suffering. And so, sorry if this is too nerdy for you. I, I like words. Uh, but I think this is so important because it shows what compassion is and that it, compassion is action. And this isn't, right now, this is not a call for you to be compassionate. Scripture does call us to that. But right now, what I hope that we see here is that our king, with all power and authority, has compassion towards you, has compassion towards me, wants to move towards us from deep in his gut with love and tenderness and comfort in our suffering. Here in our text, he's compassionate with Gentile people who probably didn't really know much about God or worship God, but they had been with Jesus for three days. More word nerdiness for you, but the, the word that Mark uses to describe this crowd and what they've been with him is this intensified, uh, intensified version of the word remain. And what struck me is the same word that Jesus says in John 15 when he says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And what I think Mark is showing us is this crowd was not casually passing by. They had sought out Jesus in this desolate place where the disciples are like, there's no way we could get food here. Um, and they had been there with him for three days, like skipping meals. There's an intentionality, a focus, even a desperation conveyed in this crowd in the sense that they wanted to just remain with Jesus, be with Jesus. So towards people who seek him, people who desire him, who desire to be with him, Jesus shows compassion. This intentionality, this hunger for him unlocks Jesus's compassion, lingering with him, wasting time with him, neglecting other responsibilities to be with him, soaking in his presence the way a branch would soak water and nutrients from, from a vine. The rest of the miracle plays out 
as Sheila read, very similar according to the first miracle. Uh, but something fun is happening, I think, with the word satisfied. And I love that whenever Jesus is feeding people, <clears throat> it's not, uh, you know, like everybody gets enough to make it home or something like that. It's like everybody ate their fill and were satisfied. And there's three times that Mark uses this word satisfied. It's in these two miracles, feeding the 5,000, the 4,000. And then also last week when we looked at the Syrophoenician woman where he's like, let the kids eat their, set, eat their fill, be satisfied at the table. We're not gonna give the food to the dogs. And, and then the, the woman plays along with Jesus and said, there's enough. There's enough for even the dogs, the puppies under the table to get crumbs. The point here is that Jesus in his compassion brings abundance. He showed compassion to the Syrophoenician woman with a demon oppressed daughter. He had compassion on the feeding, the 5,000 that he fed and here with the Gentiles. And there's seven baskets left over. As a kid hearing these two stories, I kind of thought this was like the JV feeding. This is like, oh, Jesus was just tired. One, there's fewer people. We had 5,000, now there's 4,000. Then we had 12 baskets left over. Now we only have seven baskets left over. Jesus is running out of juice or something like that. Um, but at least there's a little bit left over. But that's not the case. Most scholars believe that the 12 baskets in the first one refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, showing it's a, a little symbol, a, a beautiful symbol of abundance, that there's enough for all 12 t- tribes of God's people. And the seven baskets show that there's enough for the seven Gentile tribes. Uh, you see all throughout scripture, there's these seven Gentile tribes. They're the, the tribes that end in ite. You know, the, the, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perserites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites that you see like all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and they were, they were not great groups. <laughs> they were not great tribes. Uh, but here under King Jesus, they uh, are met with compassion and there's satisfaction for them. The story with Jesus serving out of compassion serving to people who were desperate for him, I hope can, we can allow to be the foundation for the rest that we're gonna look at. Cause it gets a little, gets a little prickly uh, from here on out and what Jesus is feeling and saying. But Jesus who is God in the flesh and God who is love in his very being in his essence, we see that everything that he does flows out of love and compassion. Look at verse nine or the second half of verse nine. After he'd sent the crowd away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. So after three days with a crowd that was desperately, tenderly teachable, uh, wanting to be with him, we see a stiff juxtaposition in the posture of the Pharisees. Jesus gets in the boat, leaves the Gentile region, returns to a Jewish region, and is uh, immediately confronted by these professional church people, the people who probably had every single Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah memorized. And they're coming in hot. They're coming in hot and bothered. Uh, The language here is combative. Like the word for they came is like an army marching out and questioning is not, I mean, asking Jesus questions is a great, great posture to be in. But this is like interrogating Jesus. There's a big difference between a curious 
teachable student and like a hostile interrogator who already thinks you're guilty and is trying to get something out of you. It's a trying to control and wrangle and get a hand on kind of posture. And it's interesting that they're asking for a sign because we know that the Pharisees had seen signs. Like they were there when the paralytic man that got lowered through the roof was healed. Um, <clears throat> they've see, they were there when the, the man with the withered hand was healed. So they, they have seen signs. At least people in their tribe had seen them. So they had eyewitnesses or whatever. So it wasn't that they were saying like, hey, just, you know, do some extra miracle. It's like they're just insisting that Jesus do something irrefutable, do something that couldn't be denied to perform on to meet their criteria. And it says Jesus sighs deeply. He sighed deeply in his spirit. This is a really strange phrase in the Greek. It's the only place it's used in the Old Testament or in the in the entire scripture in the New Testament. And uh, in it and it's not typically refer, when it's used outside of scripture, it's not typically used to refer to anger or indignation. This was so interesting to me, uh, but dismay or despair. It's like this deep sadness and despair. He, Jesus is in despair that people who theoretically would be most ready to recognize him as the Messiah are hostile and coming against him, demanding that he do what would fit their criteria, that he would meet them on their terms. They've been hijacked. The God's promised people, the people who have been entrusted with God's word have been hijacked by their own desires, by their ambitions, their politics, their own vision and opinion of what the kingdom of God should look like, that they're rejecting God who's standing right in front of them doing miracles and fulfilling the Old Testament that they had given their life to study. It was tragic. It's so sad. And the language here in these verses with the Pharisees have a lot of, a lot of hyperlinks back to Moses and the Israelites back in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the tribe uh, of God's people who were liberated from Egypt and then rejected God's plan to take the promised land and spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. So the, the word generation used here, <clears throat> how, why does this generation ask for a sign? It was almost always used negatively as this hyperlink back to that generation that wandered in the wilderness and refused to enter the promised land and trust God because they were scared of people. And Jesus in his despair just refuses to play the game. He's not arguing with them. He's so, so sad and despairing at the hardness of heart. The blindness that these people who had every resource to receive God's promised Messiah, his promised redemption with joy, and he just leaves. It's a terrifying thing to think about. And this is Jesus living out his own teaching when he says, don't feed pearls to pigs. Meaning no matter how valuable the pearls are, pigs can't eat pearls. Like it is, they can't appreciate them. They're, if they're hungry and you give them pearls, they're, they'll still be hungry and they'll eventually get mad, mad at you and trample you is what Jesus is teaching and Mark 7 says. And so there's, there's a lot of wisdom in, in, in the teaching and practice of Jesus, but I hope it would be a warning sign for us 
that this picture of Jesus being dismayed in despair, getting on the boat is, means that even if we're church people, even if we've been to countless Bible studies or even taught countless Bible studies, but in our hardness of our hardness of heart, our unwillingness to receive Jesus on his terms as he's portrayed in the scriptures and to trust him will leave us alone and angry and ranty on the beach. And if we follow, follow where the story goes, lead us to murder, lead us to want to kill Jesus, to be hostile towards Jesus because he's not the Messiah we want in our in our terms. Jesus will not argue with you. He'll leave you alone to be stuck in whatever you have chosen for yourself. And that's terrifying. Being given over, think of myself, if I were to be given over to that anger that I was steeped in for a lot of my 20s, being left alone to try to figure out life for myself, that would be, that would, that would be hell, literal, literal and Figuratively. Next, Jesus talks to his disciples. Look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So Jesus just had one of his lowest moments with the Pharisees, deeply despairing and dismayed. He gets back into his boat with, with, his, with his boys, his squad, his inner circle, the disciples. So imagine this conversation taking place on the boat as they have just left the Pharisees. And he's warning them. This stern warning against the yeast of the Pharisees. Like if I got to pick the tone of every sermon, it'd be like funny, endearing, and encouraging. But I want this sermon to reflect the text. And this isn't necessarily a funny, endearing, encouraging sermon. It's Jesus warning his disciples. And so I, I hope that we could hear this warning as well. He's using the interaction with the Pharisees to teach. So with the Pharisees, he's just like, mic drop, I'm out. Not even going to bother with you guys. But his disciples are his inner crew. So he's speaking. He wants to teach and instruct. There's a, this beautiful picture of Jesus getting alone with his disciples, with people who have chosen to follow him, to teach them. But the disciples are just on a completely different wavelength. I don't really know what's happening here. Like, did they not hear the conversation with the Pharisees or why are they focused on bread? And how in the world do they only have one loaf of bread if they just left seven extra baskets? How did they only, like I picture it like, you know, Peter assumed Matthew was going to get the bread and Matthew assumed Thaddeus was going to get the bread, you know, and it's like no one got the bread or something like that. And they're all just like mad at each other. And I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with a backstory. But whatever it is, they're so preoccupied by food 
by the details of their lives, by lunch, that they're completely blind and deaf to what Jesus is trying to say to them, what he is earnestly warning them about, what what he so desires for them to learn and be saved from. So they're distracted. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? Well, it's interesting that it says the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, because it's one type of yeast that seems to be connected to two very different types of people. Uh, It's kind of mind-blowing, because the Pharisees and and Herod and the Herodians, as they're called in other places, were were enemies, mortal enemies, about as Uh, about as different as you could be. Herod was the oppressive king installed by the Romans over the Jews who was wicked, incestuous, violent, and foolish. And the Pharisees' main passage, our main passion was to be, uh, to to pursue this Torah observance and, and the bonus laws they put on top of the Torah in order to be pure and clean and undefiled. But it's interesting, this isn't the first time we've seen the Pharisees and Herod, these two polar opposites combined. You know, back in chapter three, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And it says the Pharisees went out and conspired with the Herodians how they might murder Jesus. And so these two enemies are becoming frenemies, like friend enemies united against their common enemy, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was a threat to both of them. Both of them were seeking their own kingdom or, or in the Pharisees, a, a, a uh, twisted version of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as the king, is a threat to any other kingdom. There's a threat to Herod and his kingdom, who's just a, a puppet king from the Romans, uh, and, and threat to the Pharisees' power, which is that if everybody would just do what they say, then everything would be okay. And maybe we could overthrow the Romans. This is the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. To put it in a word is unbelief. But I just want to give a little more shape to that. It's unbelief that rejects Jesus as the king and refuses to receive the kingdom on his terms. Jesus is the king. His kingdom flows out of who he is and all other competing visions of the kingdom, all other understandings of the good life must bow, must dissipate and dissolve into his. Rejecting Jesus as the king and receiving his kingdom on his terms. Now, I just want to say unbelief is different than doubt. Scripture as I've read it, is so tender towards doubt. Jesus is so compassionate towards people struggling with doubt. Doubt is wrestling with like what to believe. There's a softness and a searching to doubt. Like I'm not sure, I'm searching and I'm hungry. I'm trying to figure it out. It's a normal part of life. And again, scripture has, has a, lot, a lot to say about it. But unbelief is a hard-heartedness. It's, it's a rejection. It's a choice, a re- refusal to accept and trust Jesus on his terms. So here's an example. And I, I hesitate to say this because I'm not sure if any of these folks are here. If you are, I'm so glad you're here. But maybe outside the church, you'd hear someone say, I could never believe in a God who judges people. And if we were to just consider that logically, there's just some some flaws in that statement. It's presuming that belief makes something real. 
because logically, if there is a God who judges, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's like, I, I refuse to, to believe in a universe where gravity pulls things down at 9.8 meters per second squared. Like it just, it, it doesn't matter whether I believe in gravity or not. And so there's this, this hardness, this hostility, or just this choice of like, I just won't. I just won't. I'm not, I'm not struggling with it. I was like, it really bothers me about some of that stuff about God judging people. I, I wrestle with how that's loving or whatever. I'm struggling with that versus like, I would never do that. I will decide what God is. And, I, and if he doesn't meet my standards, then I reject him. That's unbelief. So now we have the question, why is Jesus warning his disciples so sternly? Why is it such a big deal to Jesus to, to talk about this with his disciples? Well, in the flow of our text, this is one of the last conversations, uh, second to last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before the story changes and the, and the trajectory of Jesus's ministry starts pointing towards Jerusalem. He'd been kind of wandering around Galilee and some other Gentile areas. And and very shortly into chapter nine, he begins to turn towards Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen there. The disciples do not. He knows that when they get to Jerusalem and he's crowned and exalted as king, it's going to look very, very differently than how his disciples are thinking thinking it will be. It's not going to go the way the disciples think it's going to go. And he wants them to be wary of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, the wary of unbelief that would reject Jesus, refuse to trust him as king, even if his way of being crowned and exalted as king involves a cross. And it's just really a sobering teaching here from Jesus because yeast is sneaky. It's almost always a negative thing in scriptures because it's an image of just like a pinch a small amount of something getting into a lump of dough and slowly pervading and, and invading and controlling everything. Unbelief, I mean, just a, a pinch of unbelief, a pinch of re- resistance or rejection of King Jesus. It can be small and sneaky, but it can eventually take over and ruin everything. Like if it weren't so serious, it would, this text weren't so serious, it would be funny. When the disciples are obsessing about bread, Jesus is using a bread metaphor to teach them. And they are so distracted by lunch that they miss the, the literal you know, bread of life right in front of them. And we see his anger, his frustration with his disciples and the questions like, why are you talking about bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? He's rehearsing. How much was left after the 5,000? How much was left after the 4,000? We see Jesus being angry with his disciples. Remember the framing story is compassion, like a mother with her child. So let me, let's bring anger into parenting where I think it, it, it might make sense. Do parents full of ferocious gut level love for their kids ever get angry at their kids? Yes, because we yearn for them to understand reality in such a way that they'll survive, that they won't die. If your child, like Isla, keeps running into the street, getting distracted by a ball or a dog dog on the other side she wants to pet, with tears in your eyes, you're like, don't do that. You could die. It will destroy you. I think this is what Jesus is saying with the disciples whom he loves. 
Like, stop thinking about lunch. Do you realize what's at stake? Do you realize what is happening here? Who is in front of you? I just fed 4,000 people. I think I can handle lunch for 13. It's just not the point right now. They're distracted by the stuff of life and they're missing that the king of the universe is right there with them in control of everything. They're distracted by their worries of lunch. And it's like Jesus is saying, is it your job to feed us? Do you really think that's your job after all these miracles that I've done? This is the pinch of yeast of unbelief. Is the unbelief that would say, no, I have to handle this. This part I have to handle. I can't trust Jesus with this thing. And this is the sneaky part of it. You might trust Jesus with a lot of your life, but there, there can be parts that we hold back that like, yeah, he's the Messiah, but I got to do this. Yes, he'll get me out of hell and into heaven, but I need to handle this area of my life on my own. And that, that can be yeast that will grow and spread into your heart and mind and, dis- and destroy everything. It's this scary pattern you see in the gospels where people uh, who are the closest to Jesus or should be the most likely people to be on team Jesus reject him. Like you see his mothers and brothers struggling at some point saying he's out of his mind. Uh, The Pharisees, you know, were God's people immersed in his word and the disciples are eyewitness actually handing out miracle bread to people. But they're distracted by lunch plans and missing the bread of life right in front of them. And so the, the question for us, uh, speaking of you here, like you came here, you're willing to sit through the reading of scripture and the teaching of scripture and sing songs. Like if you identify with the disciples, if you identify as an apprentice of Jesus, the question for us is what, what, what distracts us from following Jesus? What parts of our lives or our details of our lives are we saying like, no, I have to handle this. And so we miss what Jesus is saying and doing to us. Is an easy one is, is busyness. We just get so busy that we don't actually ever listen to God because we're so busy handling our lives and the details of our lives. Like, what would it look like to have listening prayer to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm here. I want to hear from you. I know these are hard words, but my heart is that this would help us consider Jesus's hard words, these fierce warnings against unbelief that can permeate our minds and cause us ultimately to reject Jesus's abundant way of life. And I think some of the ways that this might play out, uh, two practical ways, just to try to put a finer point on it. Um, In my own struggle fighting pornography and walking through that struggle with countless guys fighting pornography. There's this weird thing where guys might be broken about it. No, it's wrong. Hate its role in their life. Uh, and then there's always a deeper soul level issue going on with the pornography struggle. Uh, but then Jesus also, because he's the smartest person ever to live, gives us some really practical advice when it comes to fighting lust, uh, which is, and it's metaphorical, but cut out your eye. If your eye causes you sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so we read this passage while talking about all kinds of other soul level things and say, what, what is it that causes you to sin in this area? And what might it be like to cut it out? And, and in our day and age, most of the time it's a smartphone. 
So what would it be like to get a dumb phone for a while while you work through, while your brain resets from all that? What would it might be like to just do without some of the internet access that you're used to? And it, that's normally the last conversation I have <laughs> with a lot of guys. They're like, I want to fight this, but not that much. And here's King Jesus saying like, if you would be made whole, cut out reasons to sin. Yes, it's a heart issue, but you need to cut out ways that you access sin. And, and, and it's, it's a rejection. Maybe it's not pornography. Maybe it's worry and anxiety. Jesus says, do not worry about your life. And calls us away from anxiety into a life of a gratitude practice, trusting in compassion, uh, the compassion of our King. But what, how do we talk about anxiety? Oh, mom's worry, or I'm just a worrier, or I'll always struggle with anxiety. Like Jesus will get me out of, out of, out of hell and to heaven, uh, but this is, just, this is just who I am. When Jesus and the scriptures say, don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. I'm not saying this just to make you feel bad about a pornography addiction or a struggle with anxiety, but instead to see that the distractedness that can come from these struggles and that, that would keep us distant from the scripture's clear invitations to abundant life can spread and pervade where our anxiety begins to shape the way our actual brain chemistry works. And we become just angry, anxious, bitter people What would it be like to remain in Jesus the way the, vine, the way he invites us to, the way these people did in this passage? From here on out, we, we start looking at the cross. From here on out, our, our series through Mark is, is a journey to the cross. And I just want to read a verse from 1 Corinthians. This is Paul talking. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded, this, demanded signs, like in our text, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Friend, our, our hope in against unbelief is to keep the cross before our eyes. If we have any doubt of Jesus's love and compassion towards us, his, his, even his tenderness in any sense of anger, it's that the cross, in the cross we see uh, that he, he wasn't willing to let us walk away, but he took all of our sin, all of our anxiety, all of our lust, all of our anger, all of our sin on him to heal us, to save us and to heal us and to make us whole so we can experience the compassionate way of life that he calls us to. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. 
If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.